Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you, or maybe your company, or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie at mission.org and let's chat. Welcome to Up Next in Commerce, the show that takes you to the front lines of what's happening in digital, retail, and beyond, with conversations from fast-growing startups to the Fortune 500 and everything in between. You'll get a glimpse into what's next. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, the co-founder and CEO of Mission.org, and I'll be your guide through all the trends, innovations, and hot topics in the world of commerce. David Ting is the CTO of Zenny Optical. But before moving to the eyewear disrupting company, David was immersed in the tech startup culture in Silicon Valley. So on today's episode, I wanted to dive deeper into the thoughtful reasons behind David's decision to move from the world of SaaS, which is software as a service, into the world of direct-to-consumer e-commerce, plus the low-hanging fruit that he sees in this space. And speaking of low-hanging fruit, I had him divulge some great details around a project that his engineering team took on within the first two months at Zenny Optical that massively impacted the company's bottom line. I'm talking eight-figure savings here, people. Plus, we got to hear strategies on how to hire top engineers in an ultra-competitive hiring landscape, plus what they did to move their mobile app up the ranks in the App Store. This episode was a fun one, so let's get into it. What are business leaders thinking about when they aren't winning a business? Family, travel, the latest TV show? Yes, yes, and maybe. But how about quirky business opportunities or little discussed financial trends or maybe even plant medicine benefits and alternative wellness? Mission Daily is back, baby, and our flagship podcast is better than ever. Mission Daily is the podcast for the business builder, the thoughtful marketer, the team manager, the blue-collar worker looking for new ways to think about life, finances, and health. This is for the people who want to break the status quo and laugh a little or a lot along the way. Join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we address the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about but don't often talk about. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. David, welcome to the show. Stephanie, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to chat today. I was looking through your background and you, I mean, to me, I was looking at everything that you've done in your past. You are a startup guy. And I looked, I'm like, okay, he's in the Bay Area. He worked at Yahoo. He's been at all these companies that have been acquired before. And then looking at where you're at now, I started looking at how you were led there and all the thought that went into it. And I actually wanted to start there with you because I think not a lot of people put as much thought into their next career move as you did. And I would like to kind of dive into the post that you wrote around how you thought about, you know, where do I want to go next after all these successful jumps through startup life? Great question. So for me, I'm at the later part of my career. So I've been through companies, I built products, I invented technology that didn't exist. Right now, what's important for me is actually leaving a legacy. Like uh, for me, thinking through, like given everything I know and I acquire through my career, what could I do to make the world a better place before I leave? So I think I still have a number of good years left. I have a team that came with me. So we all want to do that together. 
So the reason why we picked Zenny was that I first looked at it as a non-technology company. So I had some issues uh, saying, "Is am I the right person there? But as I dug deeper, a couple of things became evident. One was the fact that very high quality glasses cost so much is a problem. There's over 60% of the world's population could benefit with better eyesight and safety when they have good lenses on. And then that affordability question got me really, really excited. I said, wow, gosh, why does it cost $600 when you start analyzing material? You'll find that it's cost less than $5 or $10 to do a quality pair. And then once I start digging deeper, there's actually even more things like, why do we even have vision insurance? So if you understand like the cost of getting like the vision exam and then the glasses afterwards, it should be under $50. The fact that we're paying every month about $50 for me and my family doesn't make sense. So the money is going into the wrong places. So that got me excited. And I said, gosh, there's so many things to do. We're direct to consumer. So we own our manufacturing as well. There's so much we could do to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. I love that. And did all the tests that you did, I think it was around maybe eight years ago, hold up? You were looking at things like profitability. You were looking at, you know, uh, will these budgets get cut in a downturn? You were looking at five-year survival. Did everything that you looked at hold up eight years later? Yes. So I did a real big analysis. Uh, So uh, it's a very interesting interview process because I was offered the job. Uh, after my first interview, but I actually asked for a second interview. So I interviewed the company afterwards because I want to see if um, Julia is 100% owner, the CEO of the company. I report to Julia and I want to make sure like she's she knows who she's hiring and what I'm bringing when I talk about disruption. Uh, it's one word, but what does that mean? So uh, there's a lot. Like, first of all, the company's doing extremely well. The growth has slowed down, but traditionally, this company grew 30% year over year which actually puts you in pretty elite territory in the startup. So I think COVID affected it a little bit, but then we're very good at trimming costs and cutting out all the middlemen. So the business has been uh, traditionally for the last 20 years, didn't even have to raise money one time and everything was funded through our owners. So we're very good at turning into profit. Now it's more about like, how do we magnify this? How do we do social good? which is actually really exciting. Like, how do we get vision exam near to free? How to make it accessible for people with low income, third world country, being able to do that at the same time, generating enough money to make sure the company can survive several generations. I think uh, it's uh, all of the tests, I went through it. I went through the books a little bit and uh, everything looks great from uh, survivability and then also our price point is so low so that we're in a little bit of a recession right now. I actually think the business will do better because people actually change their behavior when they're short on cash. And then we're one of those solutions that can save you money. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it was a really good reminder of how thoughtful you can be when it comes to making that next jump and how important it is. And I mean, I don't talk to many CTOs on the show. I don't know if you've listened to some episodes, but it's usually, you know, CEOs, founders or digital leaders. So I was really excited to chat with you because I want to hear like, what does your day-to-day look like? Maybe over the past couple of years, like what are you there to do? What are your big goals right now? So um, maybe I'll talk about like from a technology to the business, because I actually done a little bit on the business. I spent six years as a general manager. So uh, does any job the CTO actually involve some uh, P&L management, profitability, revenue growth as well? So those skills actually came to play. 
So for me, uh, in the past couple of years, uh, if you look at the technology fast track in the Silicon Valley, it's always finding like a big total addressable market. People always call it TAM, TAM, TAM. It's like really try to write the business plan, making sure your product is addressing a big problem. So for the last five years, I've been working on AI ML related problems and solutions. So I started DataVisor, learning AI ML. That's basically the subject line that would really try to get deep and really understand the impact of that in terms of creating efficiency. That was actually using AI ML to detect fraud. It was actually generating a lot of good. So there's, uh, we're trying to figure out like uh, eliminating spam, make sure the product review is really good, like working with Yelp, Pinterest, or some of our customers to work on that. Then I went over to Flexport, trying to understand how AI ML can improve uh, how goods are shipped. And then I think that's actually a very interesting problem, very hard to automate. Then I went to Nihilus, where I took what I learned and use AI ML, tried to automate, make it easier to create using API so that people can automate communication. So if you're talking between people, like a customer service type scenario, or try to get information around such interaction, it's really using communication as a vehicle where data can be mined. So all of these have massive TAMs, massive implication in how we work in the future, part of the digital transformation for the world. But then when I came to Zenny, it was presented to me more as a traditional direct-to-consumer with the promise of taking these technology that will massively streamline everything we do at scale. Like For example, most of our transactions done in North America, it's good because we figured out how to fulfill and to deliver very quickly in North America. But then in Europe, we don't do a lot of sales because that problem is not solved yet. So like some of the stuff I pick up in my career can help us grow in that aspect, aspect. So we become more global as a company. But that's just one example out of many. Yeah, got it. Were there any big surprises when moving to a D2C company where normally you're focused on like the tech element and the pure tech element to then be like, oh, now this is actually a whole business that I have to think about? What were some of the big surprises? Yeah. So as a SaaS company, which I was a part of for many years and many startups, you have to do a lot because you have to, it's a B2B. You have to convince your customer to use your new features. So when I work on D2C, uh, I was joking with some of my team members because they all came from a SaaS background that everywhere we look, because we, we put money like an ROI, we try to manage our time because we can do a lot. Uh, we try to be smart where we put our time. So right now there's so many low hanging fruit. I've only been here for two months. I actually found ways to improve the margin by 15, 20%. No big deal. Yeah. So that was crazy. <laughs> I said, Jeez. Julia, you already, I already paid myself for like the next three, five years. Okay. So, so that was my first two months, but we'll have more to do. Wait, uh, what did you do in these first two months? Now I want to know high level, don't get too technical, David, but like, what did you do in these first two months to improve it like that? One of the issues with traditional industries is, is that you don't have data. So everybody start guessing. So what I did was I started use data to do approximation. So then you do like PNL analysis on everything we do. So I'll give you two examples. I won't name like the actual amount of saving, but I can tell you it's eight figures. So for example, like we have a merchandising team. So they go in and the way they did it was like, I, oh, my competitors are running these promotions. I just copy them. So they're running a 30% off. I'm doing a 30% off. So they don't think because there's no data tied behind, understand the cost, understanding how much business it brought in. So the first thing, one of the first thing we did was uh, we didn't have the data warehouse yet, but I just do it through approximation. Don't have to have exact data to, to run through the model. 
found out that we are about to lose eight figures a year. And then we start diving deep. And then it's really because we don't analyze our competitors' prices. So we're priced 40% cheaper than anybody else's. So then you apply the same coupon, then You're done. we're 40% cheaper <laughs> yeah. than their coupon. When I'm with coupon, we're actually just eating straight into margin, right? So that was something I found. And then we dug into it. And then I was looking at the PLC. I said, there's something wrong here. And we found like massive saving. That, that was actually a huge increase in margin. On the other side, the fact that, okay, we started this company to do social good. And so we never raised prices for 20 years. I looked at it, I said, wait a minute, there's inflation. Did you factor inflation in? So then we found out and we did some really light financial analysis behind the scene. And we said, okay, factoring inflation, what used to be profitable 20 years ago, uh, and this is a lot of our sales, are now negative uh, in the red. So we actually are making some adjustments there. And we're very pro-consumer. So we're basically still going to be cheaper than our competitor, but it's in a way that is sustainable. So it basically creates the right margin for us to do other program, which is more low-income focused. Uh, we work with, like, say, Medicare, for example, get people free glasses through Medicare, high-quality ones. And then we could lose money there, but then through our general consumer, we tried to basically do it in a sustainable manner. So those are kind of the two wins I found out of many in the first um, two months I was here. Also, you probably saw one of my posts on um, LinkedIn that I found like major improvements for our mobile applications. So we, we focused on mobile first, which is an obvious strategy for e-commerce companies, but that was not there when I first started. So we focused on it. The team did a great job. Uh, it's not me. I get zero credit. It's their code. And then we went from like 300 something in a shopping category, moved it up to 112 or so. We're now the biggest in the eyewear industry as far as the mobile app is concerned, but we're not going to stop. Try to shoot for the top 50. Yeah. Okay. You know, I'm going to ask this. What did you do? How did you increase the ranking? What were some of the changes that you made? Because getting a mobile app to rank higher is very hard. I know because I've built three of them and trying to get them to rank at all is super tough. So what did you do? So there's a couple of things you have to look at. Uh, I'm lucky because people love any, the customer base is already there. So if you divide it out, mobile app is one thing, Zenny. We already have the fan base, right? So we need to give them what they want. So when I came in, the first thing I focused on were the one-star reviews. So there were really legitimate technical issues. And then try to work with the tech team to say, when am I going to get this? When am I going to get this fixed? Second thing we did was we didn't understand the concept of ASO. So you launch your mobile app. Uh, I was lucky enough when I was at NetEase Games, I was publishing mobile games for a living and as well as Blizzard. So I was fortunate to have apps or features. So I understand how the ecosystem works. We don't even spend anything on digital ads, but we focus on the search terms where people can find us. And since we're number one on the internet, people do search for us. And we notice our competitors actually put the search term in. So if you look for Zenny, their ad will pop up, right? So we look at it. We basically adjusted our ASO. The third thing we did is understanding the flow of the web. So there was a misconception here uh, when I started. People basically believe that app may cannibalize the main line of business. So I came in, I said, no, that's a wrong strategy. You want to create convenience wherever they want to shop, say social shopping, they want to buy on Facebook, they want to buy on Amazon, we're there for them, right? So it's an omni-channel sales versus a strategy of directing all the traffic to the site and do all the sales through the site. 
So that was a big conversation and I got people to understand omni-channel and then the addition of all those channels greater than the site itself. And we did some experiments. So we start adding a banner on the top of our mobile web and say, if you want an app experience, install the app here and it just goes to the app store. Real simple thing. And that drove a ton of install and people gave us feedback. You just really got to be in there release quickly to get rid of those one star, two star reviews, answer the customers. We did that well. So our rating went from 2.2, 2.3 now to 4.3, 4.4 now uh, through the span of like two, two months. And then on top of it, we went, you know, we, we catapulted above Orby Parker, who's a very well-known brand and publicly traded company. And I feel like uh, really like I told the team, I say, if you do good work, you actually do what the customer asks you to do. We actually will be ranked up there too. And I just didn't know like it, it was this quick, like in two months we're actually uh, ranked above them. No, that's great. I mean, I've always felt like it's a black box knowing how to actually rank. And so it sounds like really just getting good reviews and then enough downloads, you're going to go up, right? And did you get the people who gave you bad reviews did they end up changing that when you replied to them and say, hey, this has been fixed? Did they change the review? Uh, we actually feel like each one of those is a conversation. Uh, we took care of it like a customer service request. So we want to answer it correctly. So what I told the team to do was answer them with a commitment that we're going to fix it. So don't tell them that we got your request, but then tell them like, hey, we got it and show them by our subsequent releases, these issues are fixed. So on the technology side, one of the spirits I have is, is that there's always like when you're looking for perfection, it takes too long. And the word, world is very dynamic. So when there's something obvious, just work on it. Get it done today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't take too much time debating with each other. Ship it. Test it. Decide with data. So I brought that culture in here. And then that actually changed how the team worked. The team talked a lot, but didn't ship a lot. So afterwards, like this includes our site too. Our site, I have a post that's coming that uh, in June, we had lost 1% of market share. We roared back in August because we changed our culture, how we work behind the scene. We look at data, we ship things that customers are using for. We actually basically gained back about 6% of market share plus 6%. And our competitor on the average actually dropped 2% while we grew about 10%. These are things and it looks magical, but then the formula behind the scene is getting a team that can really write code, high quality, and then bring back from the tech industry, the SaaS experience, right? Serving those customers, just be relentless, getting that experience to be perfect. And then we're still early in our journey because we're not been good for so many years that I found some wins along the way. So I'm lucky. But then at the end of the day, it's also about Zenny serving a real need and build up a great brand. So when things are right, you'll see like us serving the customer with right on technology, plus all of the great product and all of the fans we generated, it just becomes multiplicative. It actually grows really, really fast. So that's something that um, I, I can't believe because if somebody told me, say, David, in the first year, you're going to improve margin by almost 20%, turn around sales by over 20%. And then also our mobile app going from like 300 something to 100 something. And then that's your job for your first three months. Yeah, mic drop. You're crazy. <laughs> there's no way. Yeah, there's no way I could do that, right? But then coming in, it just really like every detail matters. And then uh, doing the right thing, make sure we're strategically modern. And once we do that, you'll see like the effects of the growth. Yeah, I feel like every engineer 
person right now is listening, they're like, I need to go to D to C where I can get some easy wins. I'm not valued in the world of SaaS. Like it's so hard. You go to D to C and you probably can find some low hanging fruit and do what David did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I could tell you like even something as simple, we actually did the math behind the scene, like push notification because we're technologically a little bit uh, cautious before I came in. We talked about it for two years. So I came in, it got released in three weeks. So people are trying to say debate, is a push notification going to be a personal conversation driven by AI? Or is it like the structured campaign? I just said, wait a minute, so easy. Go with the retention campaigns, calculate the ROI. So we calculated it. So we improved like D1 to D7 retention for the mobile app. And then that actually in turn, with that three weeks of work, uh, it's a million dollars a year for the company. Wow. I said, and I went to the engineer and I said, Okay, three weeks of work, a million dollars. Do you have an idea better than that? He says, no. Okay, great. You work on this right now. If you have a better idea, just work on the better idea. Don't listen to me, but then since I have a good idea for you, just work on this. Hey there, are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. Okay, I want to, we keep talking about your amazing team that is behind you. And I know that you were voted top engineering leader. You also have a team that was like voted the top engineering team. And from a you know non-technical person, I look at hiring engineers or engineering teams and it feels very difficult and hard to find the right talent. So I want to hear like, how do you go about finding your talent, you know, curating the team, growing them? I mean, you went from like zero to, I think it was 200 engineers or maybe 20 engineers to 200. It was a big amount of engineers that you hired. Like, what does that look like behind the scenes to actually have a good engineering team? Great question. And where do you find them? This is yeah. a personal question. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I tried to model people after myself. So I used to be a pretty good engineer back in the days. Uh, I got two presidential awards back at IBM and one AltaVista Employee of the Year. At that time, AltaVista was equal to Google. So I was the best engineer for that one year. So there's a couple of traits I believe are important. One is um, I believe that you always have to drive yourself to be better. So that's one of the things I look for. Is, is that people get into the detail, they understand the decisions, why they're making the certain decision. So during the interview process, I'd like to do a lot of storytelling and then say, hey, what is the problem that you solved? That's impressive. That basically, I talk about it, it's like your Mona Lisa. So this is your basic masterpiece, representative work. And then I dig in and see what decisions they made, what they built, the risks they took, and really try to take that and understand, does that fit? into what we do. And then second trait I look for are people who worked hard. I believe that there are geniuses that are at Google and Facebook. I can't touch that because I'm not a genius myself. I actually, my accomplishments come through hard work. I try to find people who understand hard work, value it, and then try to get better and have that humility about them. And then I think like that actually is sustainable in the long haul versus the short term. Lastly, it's communication. I believe that uh, communication in writing or in verbally are extremely important. Building software is a team sport now. So being able to be precise in what you do and what you think 
is extremely important. And then if there are intangibles, we actually track this. So we give people like the puzzles, but it's more about the rate they saw something versus, you know, what they do and what they don't do. It's uh, really like how fast you type, how fast you think, how fast you can code. We measure those raw attributes versus like, do you know Python? Do you know Go? Do you know Java? I think those things could be learned with uh, previous attributes. It's all good. It's more about the velocity. I call about the I call it the clock speed, like how fast because of your work ethic and what you learned before. Like one of the skills is how can you acquire knowledge, how fast you read, how how much you retain. I got pretty good at it, and that's actually my special special sauce. And then I tried to see if that's in the person in building the team. So in getting a lot of people, it's really hard. Hiring good engineers is really hard, right? So it's really showing them like how good you are. So you have to basically compare accomplishments, like problems they solve. So I personally spend about 30% of my time before Annihilus recruiting. So you always have to recruit. You look for people who are smarter than you, try to bring them in. And what you find is when people are solving really hard problems, they're enjoying it, they bring their friends here. So a lot of the people who came in afterwards were from referrals versus that we have to do everything ourselves. Yeah. Where are you going to source this talent? Are you like literally on LinkedIn looking for people solving hard things? Are you going to conferences? Like where are you finding this talent? All of the above. And we use a lot of software as well. Like what? So we use a couple of software that, uh, you know, first of all, like uh, sourcing software, you're trying to automate some of the ways. So I use uh, one of my friends, Andrew, hello, Silential.ai. Okay. So Silential, the way it works is that it automates a conversation I have with candidates on LinkedIn. So one thing you'll notice about my LinkedIn profile, I'm very socially active. Behind the scene, there's an AI that's driving email and the conversation. So when I turn it on, it will talk like David to hundreds of people. Ah, oh, David, I thought it was you. We were, I'm just kidding. I don't yeah, think we exactly, exactly. <laughs> so the secret is out. So, um, but I want to say like, this is why I love AI a bit because it takes away the grind, but the content of it is still me. So, so that's what's important is it's authentic. It's from the heart. And what we do is that once they respond to the reach out, which is something very manual, I can't do like a hundred reach out all personalized to your skill set and what you've done. So basically the AI does that for me. So it's a very personalized reach out. Very sounds like me too. Andrew's going to get some new buyers after this. <laughs> yes. Yes. He owes me a commission. <laughs> but then after that, uh, it's about like the whole experience. It's really like a jump on a call for 30 minutes to get to know each other. And then through that call, they understand what we do and see if there's a fit because my system requires people to work hard. And that's not a fit for everybody. Not everybody's in a place in the world or in their uh, life that they really want to put in that much into their career and what they do. So once you find that fit, we go into the qualification. We try to end the end-to-end process in one week. So everything I do, you'll, you'll hear like very quotable metrics because I actually believe like if you're interested in something, you'll want to get an answer quickly. So that one week was, uh, we're tied by the number of view interviewers we have on the team. So we had a ratio, we have a pipeline coming in, we calculate the ratio. So we're trying to train up new interviewers, but then that constraint actually slows us down versus like uh, the process, the bureaucracy, the business decision. Those things, um, and Nihilus, I'm very thankful that I got all the support I need from the executive team to do what we need to build up our R&D function. Mm, that's amazing. Okay, very helpful tips. 
Thank you for sharing that whole process. My one last question around hiring is how do you hire for things like hard work? I mean, to me, a lot of times people can say whatever in an interview and then they get to your company and you're like, are you really here for hard work? It's really hard to tell. It seems like this is just a side gig. So like, how do you test for that? That's actually the first 30 days. So I have a system where if you're the manager and I do that from all my direct report, you come in on the first 30 days, I'll work you. So it's not asking for them to do something I won't do, but I'm a very hard worker. I I sometimes put in 100 hour weeks in, right? So it's really understand like how much, what is their limit? What can you do? What you're good at, what you're not good at as a manager. So usually I have a document and usually when I meet people, we open up a document and then just getting acquainted to how to work with me. And we start typing out. We say, hey, here's the objective. Here's your OKRs. I'm writing it for you. And then let's talk through it. What do you need to accomplish these things? Okay, you got to learn these things, these things, these things. Here's all of the Confluence articles that are already linked in. And with it, I expect, I check in. I have weekly one-on-ones with my direct reports. Okay, next week, I expected these things at the minimum to be done. Very quickly, there are people who actually say, hey, David, I didn't sign up for working this hard. And I said, okay, well, great. Let's find an amicable way to depart because I think in your interview, I gave you a pretty good uh, expectation of how hard you need to work. But then if they thrive in the first 30 days, that's probably the hardest 30 days they'll be on the job because I want to set the bar really, really high. Everything will be a lot easier afterwards. Uh, So it's really, as a manager, really think through, like before you hire somebody, what they could be doing, what impact. Because I've seen leaders who just built organizations just for a headcount. Oh, I'm managing 600 people, so I'm great. I'm better than you. You're only at 200. So I have 600. Great. It's a numbers game. For me, it's about more about the right people solving the right problem. It's not all about the number. It's like, okay, I have two people working on this problem. Within a year, I believe they're going to crank out $30 million of value. If that's three people need to be four, let's augment the team. But then there's always like that dozen or so ideas that we bet on. Yep. Yep. That's good. Okay. One more question popped up now around hiring. Now that you're talking, I am sure a lot of D2C founders who are listening are like, that's great, but I tried to hire engineers and they all want equity and I'm not giving equity away in my company. And you are the perfect person to answer this since equity was not being given away either. So how do you go about hiring quality engineers, knowing that you're competing against all these, you know, I was in the Bay Area. I saw what the scene was like when I was working at Google back in the day. It's very, very intense trying to find engineers, especially out there. How do you compete and convince them to come to you? So first of all, on the cash side, it has to be equitable. So when I came into Zenny, I talked to the HR team and Julia to really like right-size the engineering confidence. So like Zenny actually does that um, in a way where on the cash side, your annual income does not change. Uh, so for the RSU, it's difficult, right? So if you look at like the Googles and everything else, I, I would tell people like, okay, great. You're getting a great cash package. RSU is separate. We could probably take care a little bit of it through the cash comp, but most of it's going to come through the other form is profit sharing. So uh, before I came in, we negotiated a bit. So I talked to Julie, I'm sharing something that's still a work in progress. I asked the question, if the company, so we are in the nice hundreds of millions in revenue, I said, like, if we achieve, say, a billion, that's actually a goal I've been there for several years in revenue, in record time, but just say two years, three years, how would you actually thank the employees on the team that brought you there? So we start talking through that. And then we came up with a model. I said, okay, if we 
every quarter, I work with the finance for growing to that 1 billion trajectory in the velocity we're looking, which is way faster than the previous one. There's basically a profit delta. So I already gave you some of the projects I did that improved the margins of the company by double digit percentage. Let's distribute part of that. I'm not saying like, let's distribute all of it. Let's actually take a percentage of that, distribute this cash to the people who are most deserving and made the impact. So that got checked off. And then they say, of course, like we know what our growth rate is for the last two years. If you're able to bring it up, let's make sure we compensate the team. And then if there are things that are just amazing, like the mobile team project that I just talked about, let's actually reward that team too. I said, great. So we have two sides of the profit sharing. One is if I do a great job, it gets triggered when certain metric is there. You hit a revenue goal, you hit a margin goal, you hit an expense goal, right? So once you hit all three of those, the program gets enabled for the whole company. And then it's about distributing that percentage of profit to everybody in a very fair and responsible manner. The other one is I call it the growth incentive. Is is like people are working extra hard on very risky things that could actually be a hit or could be a failure, but incentivize them to take that massive risk. So we had those two components to help like level out the RSU. I actually think like life is too short. Uh, like one of our goals is to be social, do social good. So I'm just using that one because it's not financially related. It could be like us distributing pairs of glasses to enable people to see better and then basically putting a quantity around that and funding the program. Another thing, we just launched our remake line. So we're taking recycled material to make it into our frame. So using that material so that we're ecologically responsible, taking some of the profit to also donate to um, basically organization we felt is protecting the earth like doing more of those. And then I think like these are things where, again, a normal company will go at a certain velocity. But then if you bring some of that SaaS DNA where there's equity, but now this is cash enabling the conversation. And that's also trackable where our team basically have data transparency. This is the technology team where Everything's in reports. You can pull it up real time. The data is there. And when we make improvements, it's very visible. Then we actually work together in a smart way that uh, is very impact focused versus like other D2C companies. I know they're more discussion focused and political instead. So we change the culture to be, I call it missionaries versus mercenaries. Mercenaries, you're in, you clock out, got your salary, you're done. Missionary. We're here to change the world. We're making an impact and also get paid a little bit along the way. Yep. I love that. I love that. Okay. So if I'm a DTC founder or even, you know, tech talent within a DTC company, what are some favorite tools that you think other companies should be looking into from the tech side of things? I'm just going to keep the whole conversation focused there because it's super interesting. But what do you all use that you're like, I doubt many DTC companies are using this right now and they should be. So the first one is like data warehouse and real-time reporting. Uh, so you invest it. There's a data stack associated with it, right? So I think most D2C company have the transaction data. What we're working on is tying all the manufacturing data and marketing costs into one uh, place where we can make decisions, right? So I can tell you like most uh, DDC founders have flat budgets because they don't have the data. So they want to contain risk. They'll say, okay, marketing, we spent... 100 million last year, the business grew 10%, you get 110% this year. There's no science behind it, right? 
So over here, one of the things that I brought in, and then we already had a team that was thinking that, just magnifying and just enabling it by having engineers who could do this, is tie the cost data with the marketing data. So when we're bidding for ads, we're actually buying the way we calculate the return real time. We know as a transaction happened, return on ad spend, we call ROAS. We know that. And we have a multiple that we're comfortable with. And then you just go and bid aggressively. At a certain ROAS, you just spend as much as you can. Because at the end of the day, that's actually generating a profit for the company. And that profit can be tracked real time. So having that mentality is very difficult for a traditional company that's not data enabled. So that's the first thing. Second thing is the culture. I think like a lot of the people actually think of it as we're here to do a job. We're not here to innovate or change. So that culture is extremely important. You know, in the tech company, like just like software, like Culture Amp is extremely nice. OKRs, uh, I brought in OKRs. So we're starting to do OKRs this year. I said I can't change the entire company, but the entire company decided to follow because they've been talking about OKRs as well. And I show like what my team's OKR would look like and everything looks very impactful. So I think the rest of the company wants to follow that model. I call them smart goals versus just goals, right? Smart goals are timely. They could be measured. So they're also specific in nature. So I'll give you an example of that. So like uh, something really hard to measure is brand. But then if you have the right things behind the scene, you can measure how your brand is growing, like uh, measuring how many people have heard of you, leveraging a measure in different ways. But once you make it measurable, then you can talk about timelines and efforts and see. We sponsored the 49ers, for example, Boston Red Sox, Chicago Bulls. So we could start putting those into a financial equation, seeing like in addition to that, how much revenue did it drive? Uh, work with them to improve the conversion there and make everything right. So those are things that are extremely important. Just again, that data flow and then making sure that goals are now measurable versus before I'm spending 20% on brand without thinking through what the impact is there, right? And then lastly, it's uh, going back to like the culture side, it's really getting that score. I think a lot of leaders are already talking about that. Uh, we were not there when I came to Zenny, so I was a little bit surprised, like use Culture Amp as a tool, having hard conversation. I think like uh, we have an extremely nice culture. So when I came in, I start debating with people that was looked at, oh my God, David is debating with people. Holy. This is David. Yes, <laughs> that's totally uncalled for. That's not our culture. And I said, I'm having real conversation, okay? So like the promotion, I actually said, like with my back of envelope math, I think we're losing eight figures a year. And then I really look at David and said, David, that's, just, that's not something you say publicly. It's something that you, you have to talk about people one-on-one. I said, wait a minute. That takes too long. Is this a truth? Is this a fact where it's a false accusation? And let me show you my math. And I open up the spreadsheet and show people the math, right? And then we refined it over time, but I was right in the ballpark uh, with my calculation. But having those difficult conversations, like in the tech world, there's a term called radical candor, right? Yeah, that's normal. Yeah. Having those type of real conversations, very hard for people who are used to like doing the same thing over and over again, mercenary versus missionary, right? Missionary, when I carry out a mission to save the world, let a lot more people to see better in the world, then you can have the hard conversation. You carry those on because you're disrupting, you're changing how things work versus just playing as a cog in the wheel, in the machine. Yeah. And it's so much more efficient. I know when I, my first maybe few months at Google, I was working with a ton of engineers 
in the maps group. And when I first started working with them, I mean, they would just be like, no, that's wrong. Uh, that's a stupid way of doing it. Like just so quick. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, wow, they're so just blunt. But then my whole conversation style changed to being just that. So I'm like, it's so much more efficient than trying to beat around the bush and go through like the chain. Like I'm just going to the top and saying what I think. But then teaching other cultures, like this is okay. It can definitely be uh, a little difficult as you go into like new companies who don't do that. Yeah, in the D2C, because it came from manufacturing where uh, people actually think about building widgets, it's the same repetitive work, right? Going in, clock in, clock out. But then from tech culture, it came from Google. So you understand it's a thinking culture, right? So are we thinking about, it's not the actual time worked because you can't quantify the number of widgets, right? We produce because one good idea could be like three years of good work, right? I'll give you examples of that. But it's more of like bring those conversation in light and have real talk. So I think like that's actually one of the things I was really surprised uh, going to a non-tech industry, like how culturally shocking I am because I've been in the tech industry for so long. It felt like just like breathing, me being real, right? Versus uh, me being a different person. And that different person is not good because people look at you and they say, gosh, David is hiding something. I'd rather be transparent, fact-based, data-driven. Versus like people see me and say, oh, what is he trying to tell me? Try to guess. Mm -hmm. I love that. So great. Okay. My last thing I want to ask is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received that you think about to this day? So one of the best piece of advice I received was this, like, David, life is too short. Take the maximum risk. That stuck with me because it was really early. Like I was at IBM and I was looking at like people who got awards. Uh, so like I was aspiring to somebody who won a presidential award. So I went over there and I asked, I say, I would love to be you one day. Can you teach me like your secret? How did you do it? Uh, so I'll give you an example. It's a really fun one. Uh, I was scared as hell to present. So people say, ask me, say, okay, this is the maximum risk principle at play, right? So David, what happens if there's a bad presentation? You go out there, you just, you just bomb. It was the worst. You, you can't even speak. Oh, that's not that bad. I can recover from that. I said, just be yourself. Go up there. Be natural, right? People need to know who you are. Why go in and pretend to be a person you're not? Because you're very vocal, because I was very vocal behind the scene. But then outside, like to my managers, I'm just like quiet, right? I'm the obedient worker. And I said, just show them like you know your stuff, and then that's going to impress. So what I did was I didn't present to my immediate manager. I actually presented to my manager's manager. So I said, okay, here, maximum risk, right? So if I really bombed it, I might be fired. So it drove me to work really, really hard on the presentation. I did okay. And I went back uh, afterwards and I said, hey, uh, Diana, that's her name. Can you give me some pointers on my presentation? Can you coach me too? Like just one or two words, doesn't have to take that much time. I just want to get better, right? And then she actually took a liking and she said, David, I see potential. Here are the things you did wrong. And you can improve it. I'll give you another chance. Why don't you come back two months from now and present this idea? And I worked on it really hard. The next presentation, I aced it. That actually helped me get promoted. Like every year at IBM, I was actually one of the rising stars. But it's really like me not being embarrassed about who I am, right? I'm comfortable saying, hey, I'm not good at presenting. Can you help me? And then noting like at the end, I walk away with a real asset 
I got better at presenting. So next time when I ran into that situation, second level, third level, I was presenting our third level, which is our site manager, managing 6,000 people, like, uh, what is it, two and a half years in at IBM, and it's unheard of at that time. And then people ask me, said, David, how did you manage to get that? And I said, this is my secret. I present my second level. She thought I aced it, and she gave me an opportunity to present to her boss, who's the third level manager. I try to do that. And in every tech company I work at, that's why I'm more startup friendly. It's really like try to do things that you can tell your children stories about. At the end of the day, when you're able to make that level of impact, you'll smile and say, gosh, I, you know, not only did I earn my day worth of work, but my life is interesting. My gosh, I love that. Okay, that is a perfect way to end this interview. David, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is a really, really fun conversation. I loved where it went. Until next time, where can our listeners and watchers find you? I'm on LinkedIn, David Ting. Your AI's on LinkedIn, uh-huh. Yes, and then also I'm on Twitter, DTing888. Uh, so yeah, so you can find me either places. Awesome, thank you, David. Have a great day. Thank you for the opportunity, really appreciate it. listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.